Welcome to the Double K Super Show. I'm Chris Karam, a.k.a. Chris Karam. I'm Mark Konsorowski, a.k.a. Dr. Love, Sergeant Pepper, Corporal Klinger, any other rank you may care to bestow on me. I don't think I could after that intro. We're calling this episode Double K Goes to the Movies, and we're going to be looking at three fil- three rock films or rock musicals that have gone on to become cult classics. They weren't necessarily hits in their time, but they've definitely acquired a kind of cult status. Would you say that, Mark? Absolutely. These are uh, guilty pleasures par excellence. And because this is such a big subject and we have three major films, we decided to recruit reinforcements. Uh, Our guest tonight is Kathy Williams. She has appeared on the Stateside Madness podcast, which is a podcast about the group Madness. And Ken Mills' pop podcast as one of the contestants on his fun-sized game show. Kathy, welcome to the Double K Super Show. Thank you, Chris. Pleased to be here. Hello, Mark. Hello, Kathy. Nice to see you. Now, these three films, uh, like I said, they have they are cult classics, and they have they occupy a very strange niche in pop niche in pop culture. Our first film is uh, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, starring Peter Frampton, the Bee Gees, and pretty much anybody else they could get to be in the movie. This movie was released on July 21st, 1978. It was directed by Michael Schultz, and it was written by Henry Edwards. Mark, can you sum this movie up in a blurb? Essentially, George Burns narrates the story, and according to the narrative of Mr. Burns, a number of gentlemen um, are very good friends with a certain Sergeant Pepper. These are Billy Shears and his brothers. Uh, played by Peter Frampton, and for some reason the Bee Gees. And they live in a magical, um, peaceful, whatever you want to call it, kingdom known as Heartland. And Billy Shears is in love with a woman named Strawberry Fields. And essentially, um, they decide to become huge rock stars, venture out of Heartland into what I assume is the real world, or Los Angeles, whichever comes first. And various um, strangely musically themed hijinks ensue. I would say that's a good uh, summation of it. Kathy, what is your experience with Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band? Well, I saw Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band in the theater when it came out. I was 14 years old, and I wa- I'm convinced I was its target audience. I saw nothing wrong with this film at all. Fell in love with it. Got like a novelized version of it and the cassette tape of its uh, soundtrack. And quite a lot of its trading cards are bubblegum cards. I, I enjoyed the film at the time, given my that I was in middle school at the time. And uh, your, your uh, a summation is pretty accurate. There's Billy Shears and his stepbrother are the descendants of the Sgt. Pepper of the song. They and their totally best friends, the Bee Gees, form a band themselves and take off on an adventure. And it does show... In that same way that their town is shown as this idealistic Midwestern town, Los Angeles itself is shown as this horrible den of sin, completely over the top and very hysterical. That was the 70s. And to some degree, I mean, the contrast between Sgt. Pepper, which is kind of the ultimate 60s album in many ways, gets the film treatment in a way that could could not have taken place in any other decade but the 70s. So it, it kind of shows how far things had gotten at that point, for good and also for otherwise. My experience with the movie is I saw it when it came out, too. Uh, I was a little younger than Kathy, though. I was 11. I was going to turn 12 in a, in a couple of months. And I just wanted to see this movie because I I thought it, was ex- it seemed exciting to have this movie with Peter Frampton and the Bee Gees and all these big people. I had just gotten into music the year before, so... This was all new to me, and uh, I have to admit something. This was re- my first real exposure to Beatle music. That's probably true of a lot of 70s kids. I mean, it, I won't say it was my first exposure, but as far as, like, hearing... My parents were mostly fans of the early, early Beatles, the Hard Day's Night era Beatles. This was probably my first time hearing, like, much of the later stuff. And and I think there's a reason that the songs come from Sgt. Pepper and Abbey Road rather than those very early Beatles songs, repertoire-wise. They did tend toward, more towards the psychedelic types of Beatles songs in this film rather than the earlier Merseyside-sounding Beatles songs, yes. More cinematic, more visual, I, I think. And I think that has something to do with it. 
And Chris, I agree with you. I had the same experience that although Beatles music, even in the late 70s, was still sometimes being played on the radio because radio was a lot more eclectic back then and would even play songs that had been released 10 years earlier. I'd never had an experience where just Beatles music had been played for me for two straight hours. And so I'd never identified a lot of those songs as officially Beatles songs. And that did encourage me to go to the library and check out some Beatles tapes so I could hear the originals. And it really led me on to becoming a fan of the Beatles myself in a way that I hadn't thought of up until now, up until that point. Well, the thing is, for me, yeah, it was my first experience, obviously. I was I had started to become kind of aware of them during that year. I knew that they were... They were not a current group. I knew. I, in fact, I remember saying something like, "Why is this old group always on the pictures of magazines?" <laughs> and you know, then I well, you know, yeah, famous last words, right? What happened was, is instead of getting the uh, the double album soundtrack, I ended up getting the Beatles Sgt. Pepper album. And once I listened to that, I was like, "Okay, I get this. I understand uh-huh. why these guys are so big." So mm-hmm. it's kind of strange that. I, in fact, I never bought the soundtrack album until a few years ago on CD. Strangely, as much as I have a uh, you know sort of love for this movie as a as a kind of so bad it's good sort of thing, just to never get around to it. Well, the interesting thing about the soundtrack album in particular, it tanked the careers of Peter Frampton and to a certain extent the Bee Gees. It definitely took the edge off Bee Gees mania. At the same time, it revived the Beatles' career so much that Beatlemania was like the biggest thing on Broadway the next year. Beatlemania did make a big comeback at about that same time. And strangely enough, I saw Beatlemania in 1980 on a class trip in the eighth grade. I never saw Beatlemania, but like the both of you, I definitely did see Sgt. Pepper's The Movie in the theater. I'm, pro- I'm also the youngest of the three of us. I was seven at the time. Uh-huh. What are your memories of that movie, Mark, uh, at, especially from a seven-year-old? Because I was 11, and a lot of the stuff in that movie was, you know, some of it I kind of like, hmm, this is interesting. And some of it I just, I look at it now, and I'm like, oh, wow, I didn't get that back then. Any of the sexual windows or during the uh, the day in the life when they're flying on the plane with the big RSO logo, and everybody's inside um, in, a, in a sort of smoky haze. I can't say that I I fully understood where the smoky haze was coming from. Well, ju- I just was watching it before we started recording, and it's like it's from all those waiters in the back who were, who were smoking. Oh, yeah, I think that's probably what it is, yeah. I also of- rewatched it this week and did notice that mm-hmm. there were people smoking what clearly were joints, but that at 14 I would never would have identified them as such. And people smoked everywhere all the time back then, so it really slipped under my radar. Yeah, there was a lot of things. Not that the movie is is just like one voice after another, but the songs themselves have a whole lot of concepts within them, which when you're anywhere from 7 to 12 years old, you don't necessarily pick up on. It's It's the kind of the gift that keeps on giving. You understand more about these songs they they unveil themselves in layers as you as you progress with them oh yeah and when i think about this movie it's when this movie came out the people in hollywood must have been thinking okay we've got peter frampton we've got the bgs robert stigwood produced the movie and robert stigwood had just produced two back-to-back smashes with saturday night fever in greece so this they had to be thinking this was a sure thing and that this was going to be the biggest hit this was going to be an even bigger hit and it wasn't well according to what i'm reading on wikipedia the budget for the film was 13.2 million dollars and the box office receipt was 20.4 million so it made the budget back but no it was no one's idea of a blockbuster and that that up until that point robert stigwood my own memory of him was just that it was felt up until that point that he could do no wrong because Grease and Saturday Night Fever had been such overwhelming successes that I think it really surprised people that, in fact, he could go wrong. And Beatles music itself is so held in such high regard by its fans that I think people, a lot of people were offended that someone would even try. Well, it's that you try to put a literal visual image to a Beatles song and try to pin it down to one particular image or interpretation. I think that's really what offended fans the most. Well, not only that, I mean, 
you've also got this thing that's supposed to be a Beatles movie, but it's also a satire of the entertainment industry or the music industry with, you know, B.D. Broadhurst or B.D. Calhoun or whatever his name is, Brockhurst, being this guy who as soon as he signs them, they all become, they all sell their souls to him and become employees with, you know, T-shirts that have the B.D. logo on them. <laughs> and, of course, the drugs and everything. And it's 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 just... Like Mark said, this is a film that only could have been made in the 1970s. Yeah. And you have to, you know, as much as what you saw on screen in terms of substances, you have to imagine that behind the scenes it was probably ten times worse. Well, it's probably during one of those um, substance-induced brainstorming sessions that this entire idea was uh, <laughs> called together in the first place. Stigwoodberg's probably sitting in his, you know, in his on his on his yacht or something. Now I'd like to make this movie about the Beatles. <laughs> yeah, I guess it. I I was listening. I was watching the Blu-ray and listening to the commentary. And I guess this movie it took quite a few years to get this movie made between negotiations and all that. I think part of what might have sunk the movie creatively was that too many people got to have say over certain parts of the movie. That's definitely it's definitely a case of too many chefs spoiling the broth, so to speak. So what is everybody's favorite cameo in the film? Oh, I would have to say now as an adult, my favorite cameo in this entire film is Earth, Wind and Fire. Their version of God to Get You Into My Life really sounds like Earth, Wind and Fire. I mean, they really made it their own and it doesn't in any way feel corny or cheesy or embarrassing. There are a lot of other songs done by other uh, artists in this show that you can't say that about. But in this case, it's just played so straight. It's interesting. How about you, Chris? Well, Mark, you're going to love my answer here. <laughs> you're gonna, in fact, no, you're going to hate my answer. That's okay. My favorite cameo is probably Aerosmith. Ooh. Because the I was Future Villain Band. Yep, the Future Villain Band. I knew of them, but once I saw them in that movie, I thought, well, these guys seem interesting. And I became an Aerosmith <laughs> fan after that. Now, that having been said, when I watch the movie now, I can see that of everybody in the movie, they were probably suffering the most collateral damage from their partaking of certain substances, shall we say. <laughs> they do look a bit rough around the gills. See, I don't know what Aerosmith is supposed to look like. I think they're supposed to look like that. <laughs> well, yeah. Kind of was true at the time. <laughs> yeah, Aerosmith was kind of – I love Aerosmith, but sometimes I think they were a band – who became successful in spite of themselves. You know, this film, as far as I know, did not damage their reputations. It may have been early enough in their career that they didn't really have debt reputations to destroy, but it certainly, in that same way that we can say, oh, well, this destroyed Peter Frampton's career, well, it didn't destroy Aerosmith's career. I remember that song, probably of every song on this soundtrack, I remember that one getting played on mainstream radio for years. I think part of the reason, though, is that Aerosmith were playing, number one, a cameo as opposed to an actual active part in the movie. Yeah. yeah. And also the fact that they were playing, you know, the evil guys, the bad guys, <laughs> a part that almost, by the way, went to Kiss. Oh, I can't imagine that. I can't imagine that. Yes, but they chose to do another movie that, you know, that they felt would further their career. <laughs> and uh, we'll be getting to that shortly. But yeah, Mark, you're right. It was supposedly offered to Kiss, and they turned it down. In retrospect, they probably might have been they might have been better off doing this movie. <laughs> I don't know. But anyhow, uh, my well, I was going to quickly add my favorite personal cameo part, which is actually a tie between Steve Martin singing Maxwell Silverhammer and Alice Cooper doing Sun doing um, because. <laughs> you mean the uh, Alice Cooper with the mustache? Alice Cooper with the mustache doing possibly one of the creepiest Beatles songs that have ever been written. So they got the right guy for it. They definitely did. <laughs> Steve Martin's cameo, on the other hand, is very Steve Martin-esque. It, you almost picture him with the arrow through his head. He I'm was saying. very much his wild and crazy guy persona and not playing you know, some other character. You know, I'm starting to notice a trend here. The people who come off the best are the people who are pretty much allowed to be themselves. I, <laughs> you know, seriously. And and I and as much as I love Aerosmith, I, I will have to say, although my favorite part of the movie is Aerosmith, Earth, Wind, and Fire definitely 
came out of it probably the best uh, artistically. Because, oh, yeah. like you said, Kath, they, I, I, from what I understand, they were the only band that weren't produced by George Martin on this soundtrack. They, they produced yeah. it themselves. So they kind of had some creative control over it, and they did a wonderful arrangement of Got to Get You Into My Life. That explains did. why it really stands out. Well, there, there were three, it seems to me there were three tiers of artists. There were people who were cresting at that moment at the absolute zenith which would be the Bee Gees and Peter Frampton. Then there were people who had been huge stars and were kind of almost on the wane at that point. You know, Alice Cooper definitely fits in that category. And then there were people like Earth, Wind & Fire or Steve Martin that were really on the rise at that point. Looking at it with hindsight, with 40-plus years, this movie is almost like the love boat of uh, rock musicals. Especially that's the, the the very end when they have the the big choir of uh, celebrities, you know, f- famous and not so famous, singing the song. And part of the fun of watching that is just trying to see who you can spot during the uh, during that because they they cut back and forth between a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Shalana, all sorts of people. Like, and of course now it's mostly who was that? You know, people that like. Win, you win trivia bouts with. At the time, that almost felt like an endorsement of this film by all these wonderful entertainers. Like, I think Tina Turner was in there, and like you said, Shanana and uh, Carol Channing. Uh, right. Any Anytime you see a, a film like that and you see all these people, oh, they must love it. And yeah. they were probably just they were probably just asked to appear by their age. Do you want to be in a in a Beatles movie? I'm like, uh, sure, whatever. Yeah, as a 14-year-old, I thought, oh, my gosh, look at this cast of characters. This, I'm seeing the best blockbuster of our time. And now, as an adult, I'm thinking all these people were probably set, told, hey, there's lunch in it for you. If you just put in 10 minutes. <laughs> I'm guessing people. is how that happened. People, yeah, people. Who were, were just on the lot that day for whatever reason. I'll tell you how much of a geek I am. I watched When I was watching it on Blu-ray, I recognized two members from the band Heart. <gasps> oh, no, I missed them. Yep. The, the, I think it's the drummer, yeah, the rhythm section. Oh. So it's again, it's just it's just so much fun to watch. It's like in a, in a way, it's like it's it's a B movie, so bad it's good type of thing. But I enjoy it. And one thing I wanted to talk about before we kind of wrap this part of it up is the fact that none of the characters have dialogue. Mark, do you know why? Well, among other things, horrible actors. But no, what is what is the actual reason? Well, apparently, when they started filming the movie, two things happened. And, I, and I, one of this, I, I saw an interview with Barry Gibb years ago on a Behind the Music, and he said that the first day of filming or the first week of filming, the Bee Gees asked to be released from their contract. They just, I think, they realized they were in over their head. And then when they were watching some of the early footage where they did have dialogue, they realized that nobody could act. So the decision was made to have George Burns become the narrator and do this voiceover to sort of propel the movie along. Otherwise, this it you know, well, I was going to say it could have done worse, but I don't know if that's possible. Mm. So what value does Sgt. Pepper have for a for a millennial or you know a contemporary youngster that knows almost nothing about the Beatles or 70s culture? What did they get out of this? Kathy, you want to tackle this one? I don't know if value is the word. Probably novelty value. I have a 21-year-old son who came up and watched the last half of us this with us earlier in the week when we had this on. And to our absolute shock, after about the third or fourth song that he heard, he said, hey, they're not singing the songs in the exact consecutive order that they are on the net Sgt. Pepper's Little Arts Club Band Beatles album. We had no idea that he knew which songs belong on which album and in which consecutive order. Uh, so millennials certainly do. In fact, I think he's Gen Y now, not uh, or Gen Z, not a millennial. So still to this day, the Beatles hold up to them. So I think sheer novelty value, because there's not enough actual 70s in this film to explain the 70s to a current day young person, because it was such an exaggerated version of a small town 70s life and then los angeles 70s life based on music from the 1960s (laughs) i know it's such a strange like paradox you have a 70s exaggerated take on 60s psychedelic music and then i'm thinking 
what is a kid raised in like you know the two thousands? It, it's a bit like us sitting down trying to watch you know silent films from the from the teens and twenties and just fixating on their exaggerated you know clown face makeup and the gestures and everything, and wondering is that really what the world was like? I was gonna say if I may give a special shout out to George Burns, seventies and eighties teenagers genuinely loved George Burns for who he was. He lived to be a hundred. So he's probably at least in his eighties uh, during Sergeant Pepper's Only Hearts Club Band. And at one stop part, as he sings, fixing a hole, a song from the sixties, he does a sort of a vaudevillian soft shoe dancing sequence in that scene. It is beautiful, corny because of the music and the setting, but beautiful seventies teenagers got to see George Burns do a bit of a almost of an almost vaudevillian act in this film. It does definitely uh, definitely correspond across the years to various generations. The interesting thing too, with like George Burns, he was he was sitting fixing a hole, and I could almost see him saying, "Back in my day, you know, <laughs> I, used to fix a, I had an act where I was telling jokes, and uh, this plumber was fixing a hole on stage. Guys were erupted during my routine. It was terrible." Ethel Merman had to take over at that point to, to quell the crowd down. Uh, Gracie was not happy with me that night. No, no lamb chops on my plate. <laughs> see, see, I think that... of, see, see, Kathy, see what kind of the, you know conversations this thing inspires? Well, where else can you see George Burns together with Alice Cooper, together with Billy Preston? Only the 70s. And I'm just going to throw in one more note about this that's related to the soundtrack album. It's the only soundtrack album that I know that sold 3 million copies and yet was a flop. The reason for that was because the record company decided to ship 8 million thinking it was going to be a huge seller. So they sold about 3 million and got 5 million back. And you could buy those records and cutout bins at record stores for the next decade. Uh Aha, that probably explains why my parents gladly handed it to me like a little present one day when... Generally speaking, we weren't out buying record albums at our income level. I had two copies of that album, and uh, both of them had both of them had that hole in the in the corner in the top right corner. Yep. And they talk about on the on the Blu-ray how the original double album the the list price for it was fifteen ninety eight, and this was forty two years ago. You know, figure it out. Figure it out why it didn't sell. For at that time, that would have been a tremendous amount of money for a record album. I think yeah. record albums, generally speaking, were selling for like seven dollars at that time. Right. Yeah, seven or eight bucks. So yeah, that was uh, literally, you know, you had to, you had to, you know, beg, borrow, or steal to get that record. Kathy, do you have any last thoughts on Sgt. Pepper's? Only to say, and I'll probably say that about all three of these films, it is very much a film of its time. It's a film that you love when you're young. You're like, that's kid stuff when you're in the middle of your existence. And later on, after many, many years, you come back and it becomes cool again because now it has the patina, the patina of nostalgia on it. It does. It's be, now, now it's officially retro. And I'm going to go with Mark because he said it a lot better than I would have. <laughs> None more retro. <laughs> okay, and with that, we're going to move forward to our next movie, Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park. This movie aired on the NBC television network on October 28, 1978, directed by Gordon Hessler and written by Jan Michael Sherman and Don Boudet. Not Jan Michael Vincent, Jan Michael Sherman, just in case you were wondering. Talking about the tank manufacturer, not the guy with, with only one ear. I don't know if Jan Michael Sherman manufactured tanks, but I imagine after writing this, his career probably didn't, uh, his career prospects were, probably weren't that good. Well, that was, a, that was kind of a pun in a sort of a slow-burning pun there, because this movie did indeed tank. Oh, I got it. I got the joke. Uh, Mark, why don't you summarize this movie for our listeners? Uh, let's see. This is kind of a hard one. Okay, everybody pay attention, because this is going to be incredibly complex. A theme park opens up. Kiss gets invited to play a gig there. Abner Devereaux recently got canned, because people thought that his... Mannequin creations were too dangerous. Abner's angry about it. He's angry about Kiss being hired. He decides to build an evil anti-robot Kiss. And what have I missed? I think that's everything. That's pretty much it. 
Kathy, what is your experience with Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park? Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park came on television in either 1978 or 1979. And I was able to see it from my home. And I was not a Kiss fan. We had even had our school teacher show us the front cover of, of a Kiss album and inform us that Kiss hates women because Kiss had sharp shoes and were pointing them at the women at the foot of the stage on the record album cover. So I had already, and I don't remember them really being played on the radio that much. So I wasn't quite familiar with what their music sounded like, but this film came on and sure enough, they're at an amusement park and they're rescuing people. And they, you know, somebody judges a little kid uh, kiss contest with the kids putting the makeup on. And I was all in. And then when they finally get to where the concert footage, it was pretty good music. So I was one of those, you know, middle school girls again because it was about the same time Sergeant Peppers came out who decided I liked Kiss after all that if you actually read Gene Simmons autobiography and I know he's written I believe he's written more than one this is like the audience that he didn't want Kiss to have (laughs) I didn't become aware of that until later well Gene Simmons has written one autobiography and the other three are just variations on the same thing (laughs) I read oh, one of them about 10 years ago, and he did refer to that as as an unintended consequence of them making this film. Mark, what is your experience with Kiss Meets the Phantom? Well, you know, I, I was very concerned that Kiss hated women, but when I saw them... <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, when I saw them grouped, grouped around the piano, Peter serenading uh, the girl with a heartfelt rendition of Beth. I mean, it was obviously we're softies at heart. And so I, I've been able to get rid of my own feelings of hatred toward women <laughs> as a result of watching. And, you know, I, I've dated several times since. <laughs> Thanks to Kiss Me's the Phantom, right? Absolutely. Okay. I got I to gotta recover from that one. <laughs> I never had the impression that Kiss hated women or whatever i mean peter chris serenades that girl for like 10 minutes playing the same song over and over it's like the longest version of beth you'll ever hear mm-hmm. now my experience with this movie was i had become a kiss fan in 1977 the year before this came out this was the event of the week as far as i was concerned i didn't want to be any place else but in front of a tv set when that movie came on and in fact my dad and it was a Saturday night. My dad had picked me up. He had worked that day and he took me out to dinner. And I was like, dad, we got to get back by eight, by eight o'clock. Kiss meets the phantom is on tonight. And I probably said that to him about 12 times during the thing. And I got back home just in time to see the movie because keep in mind, folks, that this was pre cable, pre VCR. If you missed it, you missed it. And kiss meets the phantom wouldn't be shown again on American TV for at least in my experience, for several years. But this was the event of the week for me. I probably thought at the time it was the greatest film on planet Earth. Uh, I certainly, you have to understand, in this pre-YouTube, pre-internet era, seeing Kiss was like a treat. You didn't see them on TV all, all the time. So this was two hours that I could reserve to see Kiss. And looking back on it, they're probably only in the movie for about a half hour. <laughs> yeah, there's a whole lot of confusing bits with Admiral Devereaux, uh, various security guards bantering with each other, park owners walking around. The movie is about a whole lot of things. Kiss is there, incidentally. And I think Kiss appears in live footage for what is about 30 seconds, the first half of I Stole Your Love, and that's really about it. So for, for a film that was billed by the creators as Hard Day's Night meets Star Wars, it left a tiny little bit to be desired. It was more like the Bugaloos meets Shazam. There were some cheesy special effects in this film, but yet at the time for television, I don't think I ever once went, oh, wow, that really looks like somebody drew on the on the film cartridge, or film strip with a marker. We didn't just see it that way back then. Part of that also is the audience that it was the film was intended for. I mean, we we definitely had uh, somewhat lesser standards in those days. Well, let's put it this way. You know, if if they had put the Muppets in there or the Fawns, I would have been like, this is even better. Yeah, the movie, you're right. It's when you're 12. I was 12. And this movie was, like I said, it was the greatest thing I'd ever seen. And 
you don't, you know, you realize later that this movie shares something in common with the previous movie in that the stars were not actors. And it shows. I mean, Paul Stanley has probably one of the best line readings in the uh, movie. And I even have an ex-girlfriend who was not a Kiss fan, but even she would quote the line, you're looking for someone, but it's not Kiss. <laughs> be careful. Be careful, Peter. Be careful, Catman. They're serious. And they have guns. <laughs> yeah, they... I don't think... I don't think I could quote you one line from this film. And I saw it at the time. And uh, when VCRs became a thing in like the kind of the, the early 90, early to mid 90s, when not only were VCRs a thing, but one, I had one. And two, video, you could find a video store in your town that had obscure videos. And I managed to rent Kiss Me's the Fan of the Park because I was looking for it. And watched it again at that time. And then I watched it again because we have the Kissology anthology and it's included as a DVD. Mm. So we ha- have it now. I couldn't quote you one line from the whole film. And I did just watch it again recently. Well, my favorite one is Star Child. <laughs> yeah, Star yes, Child. That's probably reverb. the one line I can tell you. And of course they put reverb on Gene's voice to make it sound echoed and awesome. <laughs> And how when he gets mad at people, instead of yelling at them, he just growls at them like a lion. He does. He just roars. And it works. Apparently, like, Ace Frehley can teleport himself anywhere he wants. Paul Stanley can shoot lasers out of his eyes. And here apparently can even overhear conversations using his laser eye. Oh, that's, that's the, make... the, yeah, that's the essential plot point that we need, we need to include the talismans. The talismans. Without it, we're just ordinary people. Well, do you know where they got the talismans from? No, I, I do remember. not. Okay, I can answer this because this comes from the very thing that got me into Kiss in the first place. The 1977 Kiss comic book from Marvel Comics. And in that book, the talismans were introduced. They were given to them by this gypsy guy who was kind of like a kind of like Gand- a hippie version of Gandalf. Hmm. They all became Kiss because of it. So they, they drew that from the Kiss comic book. That I didn't know because I never owned the comic book. But that's that is good a good to point know. that... But if you're just watching the film, their backstory is never really explained. It's almost like coming in into the middle of a story. You're right, because they're hired as a rock band, you know, to save this park from uh, financial ruin because the owner let Abner Devereaux take over his park. And Kiss apparently is not, like I said, Kiss is not only just a rock band, but they've also got superheroic and supernatural powers. Well, I was going to quickly say that. You know, for for all this movie was intended to herald Kiss and bring them to the next stage in their career. I mean, as far as the plot of this movie is, is concerned, they could easily decide the Doobie Brothers. Well, the, Do- the Doobie Brothers had already made their debut on What's Happening, so you know they they were good. Yeah, you didn't know what Gene Simmons would do to the guy in the front row if they they were dancing hip hop and then their tape recorder fell out right in front of him. He'd be <laughs> roaring so loud. And Paul would vaporize it with his laser eye. <laughs> So yeah, quickly, it, who plays a better evil band, the future evil, the future villain band, or the rip and destroy androids? Oh, well, the rip and destroy androids are trying to kill you, although the future villain band is trying to kill one person. Yeah, who's more evil? The future villain band has to be more evil because they succeeded in killing someone. That's true. Yeah, but she got if, brought back to life by a by a weather vane by played Billy by Preston. Billy. Billy Preston. Uh, that's a good point, too. But uh, <laughs> that's a tough call. But I'm going to go with Kiss because they're my boys. And, you know, Rip and Destroy is one of the classic Kiss songs that never has ever got released on record. And as a Kiss fan, I would love to have a recording a, a recording of that. And Mark, you can probably tell Kathy what Rip and Destroy is really based on. Please do. Is there something that it's absolutely based on? Hotter than hell. Well, oh, oh, yeah. Well, yeah. It's it's the in- instrumental track of Hotter and Hell with new vocals. I thought you meant like some philosophical concept. Oh no, no, no. <laughs> you're wait a minute. You're looking for a deep philosophical concept with Kiss? Okay, let me start over again then. Okay. Rip and Destroy is basically the instrumental track of Hotter than Hell with new Paul vocals overdubbed, which probably explains why it's not available anywhere else. Yep. And it's it's funny because. If you listen to it, it's just the same lyric repeated over and over again. It's like uh, play that funky music or something like that, where they just keep going and going. And one more thing I'd like to discuss before we move on to the next movie 
the villain of the movie, Abner Devereaux, played by Anthony Zerba. Kathy, do you have any thoughts about Anthony Zerba as the evil inventor Abner Devereaux? I cannot tell you how many times I thought of Steve Jobs during watching this Abner Devereaux uh, take over the Vincent Price role, essentially, in House of Wax. But Steve Jobs, this was before Steve Jobs' time. Maybe he's a <laughs> forerunner of Steve Jobs. After all, he's a technical guy who invents things. Just saying. It's a prototype. It's a prototype that was already out there. But every time I saw him, even the haircut, I would think, hey, that's Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs running around the amusement park taking uh, poorly acted hoodlums and turning them into fembots. I always just pictured Anthony Zerby as, like, you know, a, a veteran character actor, somebody who's, who's acted in nine million jobs. He's comfortable. He's well off. And it's just at this point, he's just like, well, I need to get out of the house every once in a while. And here's a script. And all right, we'll do he it. Was an act, he was an actor I pointed to and asked my husband, where do I know him from? And even when I looked it up on IMDb, I still couldn't place him. He was a character actor in the 70s and probably the 60s as well. I mean, he's appeared on uh, – he was on a show in the 70s called Harry O with David Jansen. Not he's one also, of my shows, so. Okay. He also appeared about 20 years later in this movie Star Trek – oh, I can't remember it. Uh, Star Trek – it's one of the Next Generation Star Trek films, but he's I been in – Undiscovered Country. No, no. This is the 90s. I may have just seen him around because I do watch a lot of, t- t- of TV, so if he did guest spots – Oh, trust me, if you were watching TV in the 70s and 80s, you probably saw him on any number of shows or movies. He did just look so familiar to me, other than I felt like he was impersonating Steve Jobs before Steve Jobs' time. I think in a lot of ways, and this is I'm basing this off something I read one time, he seems to be the one actor in the movie who really seems to be focusing on trying to make an actual character as opposed to, you know, everybody else. He did well, put some effort deal. into it. I think he's really the only legitimate bona fide actor in the entire film. Well, you do have Carmine Caridi as the park owner, but the guy with the uh, wide lapels on his jacket. And, you know, it's it's a guy who is walking around a California amusement park in 100 degree weather wearing a, a suit. And yet he never sweats. Well, actually, no, he does get sweaty during that scene near the pool where they're, where they're interrogating them about break-in. Well, so far, both of these films involve a young uh, woman trying to bring back her boyfriend from being controlled by evil forces. Yeah, there's kind of, there's kind of um, what do you want to call that, a sort of like a Freudian kind of thing going on, maybe. <laughs> so there you see, so far we've watched two films that, although they may seem sexist on the surface, are actually pro-women. What better movie to review next than Can't Stop the Music? <laughs> That's Mark's way of saying, okay, we need to move on. (laughs) Our next movie is Can't Stop the Music. This was released on June 20th, 1980, directed by Nancy Walker, and written by Alan Carr and Bronte Woodard. This movie stars The Village People, Valerie Perrine, Steve Gutenberg, Bruce Jenner, and anybody who couldn't get on Love Boat, or maybe had been on Love Boat. I was going to quickly say my favorite is the woman who plays Lulu who actually is is quite a well-known Broadway um, theater star. But in this movie, she stars as a double for Lou Reed. <laughs> yeah, they tried to get Lou Reed, but Lou Reed uh, didn't understand the plot. No. And speaking of the plot for this movie, such as it is, um, Mark, why don't you summarize this movie? Okay, so uh, Steve Gutenberg, later of Police Academy is not happy at his record store job. He'd rather be entertaining people himself. He gets fired from his job because he wants to go to the disco and debut his newest creations. At the disco, he runs into Samantha. Samantha encourages him, blah, 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 blah. Samantha, meanwhile, is having romantic complications with the former Bruce Jenner, who at that time is employed as a lawyer, but he's on the outs. This one's a bit more complicated than the other two. Somehow or other, Samantha meets up with various uh, colorfully dressed denizens of the uh, Greenwich Village cultural scene. Somewhere along the way, a rock band is formed. They go into the studio, have all kinds of adventures, and somehow end up in a milk commercial. 
<laughs> and you know what they say, if you drink your milk, you'll become very successful. Also, uh, I visited a gym and some full frontal nudity. Yeah. Kathy, what are your thoughts on Can't Stop the Music? What is your experience Can't, with that? Can't Stop the Music is, I remember music videos from it being played on television. I did not get to see this film when it came out. I honestly don't even remember it being released in my hometown. It may have been. And so thought, it's something that I've seen clips on on television over the years, but did not see sit down and see all the way through until just earlier this week. And so it was fun. What were you going to say, Mark? I was I was going to say that I actually did see this movie in the theater. Uh-huh. My mom took me to the Woodhaven Mall in Bucks County, PA, about five minutes outside of Philly. Our choices that day were either to see this or the game show movie, and we saw this. Uh, what did the you The Gong think? Show. The Gong Show movie. <laughs> Your mom made oh. the right choice. <laughs> I was going to say, you have a cool mom, but if she had taken you to see the Gong Show movie, that might have uh, that might not have been a good thing. Yeah. As it was, the, uh, the full frontal nudity in this movie quickly rushed by us. Neither of us caught it. Uh, this movie was confusing. Because I think even at that point, I knew everybody in the film was gay. Even at that age? I kind of felt like these guys were, like, hanging around a lot with each other and in gyms. And the only person in the movie that seemed to have a girlfriend was Bruce Jenner. And what a girlfriend he had. My experience with this movie, I remember when it came out, but I did not see it when it came out. In fact, I didn't see it until almost a decade later. And I remember it was probably 89 or 1989 or 90, and I was channel surfing one night, and the ABC was showing it for some reason, probably like a summer, just to fill a two-hour time slot in the summer. And it was interesting because by that point, you know, 10 years earlier, I probably would have been, I would have been, wow, this is great. But I was watching it like going, okay, this is kind of funky. And then I didn't see it again for several years until, you know, I got I saw it on video. And then a few years, a couple of years ago, I got the Blu-ray version of it. One thing I will say about this, this is a very homogenized version of the Village People story. Oh, yeah. It's very highly fictionalized. You have, you know, Jack Morrell, who was really supposed to be Jacques Morali. And you have, you know, the Village People all just happen. They just happen to run into them. You know, Felipe is, is uh, apparently neighbors with uh, Valerie Perrine's character. And one by one, they all kind of show up. But the funny thing about it is that, you know, the, the second the last two members of the group don't even join until the second half of the movie. My take on this movie is that I see this movie more about the Valerie Perrine and uh, Steve Gutenberg characters and Bruce Jenner to a lesser degree. With the village people kind of popping in at random intervals to do uh, musicals about milkshakes and the YMCA and Magic Knights. They do seem to be kind of. It, it's this movie is structured more, much more like a classic MGM musical. It's kind of like Gold Diggers of 1979. It has it has a very flimsy plot, a romantic plot, a bunch of like song and dances that are all played by the same act. Continuity is is a bit thin on the ground. <laughs> Well, not only that, it was directed by someone who'd never directed a, a movie before. Kathy, do you know who the director is? It is Nancy Walker, as you stated. Yeah. And she had a huge history on television. I don't know if she had any history with films, because I don't know that part of her experience. I can maybe see her directing an episode of Rhoda. You know, I don't think what went wrong here was the directing feel that they did not trust any of these singers to even try to do their own acting and that's why they were kind of kept in the background most of the time unless it was time for them to go on stage right and well i think one thing that plagued this movie and one of the the downfall why it wasn't so big was because it came out a year too late (gasps) yes because no one wanted it was 1980 and disco was dead and they still sang disco in this film if this movie had come out a year earlier or a year and a half earlier when the village people were at their peak it would have it, it might have been a big movie. It might have done well. When they started making this movie, a couple of things happened. The movie was originally called Disco Land, where the music never ends. And just prior to the, the beginning of filming the movie, the Village People's lead singer, Victor Willis, left the group. So all of a sudden, they've got to make this big movie, and they've got to bring in a new policeman right away. 
So between that and trying to make this movie around a musical group that of people who don't act or have never acted before, is it any wonder why this movie was such a bomb? Well, that and I think the cocaine was wearing off. People were basically just tired of, you know, boogie, 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 dance, dance, dance. There was a resurgence of conservatism around this time also because of the the Iranian crisis, the Reagan there cer- years. There certainly was, yeah. 1980s, the Reagan was elected. He may not have been elected at the point that this film came out, but the voting population was tending towards electing him. And a lot of the songs in this film I did not recognize. Like I said, I never really watched it all the way through until earlier this week. But most of the songs in it, I'm thinking the film was meant to showcase those and make people want to go buy them, like as a promotion. But instead of playing all their hits, and that might have made people want to come see a band they know and see the songs they knew, um, it was them. They might have played actual YMCA, but after that, everything was were songs that are new. Well, obviously, they had a soundtrack album that they were also trying to hawk. Mm-hmm. What's interesting, when I was watching it last night that I'd forgotten, the movie is called Can't Stop the Music, and it's supposed to be about the village people, yet the song that plays over the opening credits is called New York, and it's not even sung by the village people. So they, and they say Can't Stop the Music for the very last song in the movie, the big, you know, big musical number at the end. So you're trying to promote the village people, yet at the same time, they were trying to promote two other artists. I believe they were called – one guy was – the guy who sang the title track was David London – and another Casablanca group called the Ritchie family. And the funny thing is, is this movie, they keep saying, this is 1980, this is 1980. But it's clear that the movie was filmed in 1979 because everything in that movie is, is a pop culture time capsule that just sh- showcases that. I mean, when they walk, out of a, they walk out of a store in New York, there's a Donna Summer poster up, you oh. know. And, I mean, there's probably so many Easter eggs in that movie, it would take – we could be here for hours just dissecting that, but it's clearly, even though it came out in 1980, it's really a 70s movie. It's really more in line with Sgt. Pepper, if anything. One thing I enjoyed about the beginning of this movie, and because I didn't recognize the song, I also didn't recognize that that wasn't the village people singing it because it was so unknown to me, is the film starts out with some really beautiful and fun footage of what New York, the streets of New York City looked like at that time. And I'm originally from Central Washington State, now live in Minnesota, so I wouldn't know what's, what New York looked like at that time. I can only trust what I've seen in films. But they really made it look like someplace you would want to be, as opposed to Sgt. Pepper when they showed Los Angeles. They made it look like a bad place you didn't want to go. Yeah, I think uh, New York was the interesting thing about that, of course, is that a lot of people would look at that and say, that's not what New York looked like. It was way, way worse <laughs> because New York at that time was in sort of probably the lowest ebb of its fortunes, actually. They really seemed to be it, intentionally trying to play it up. Yeah, they were make, definitely making like an I love New York infomercial, basically, even though even though there is one point, however – where the three girls on roller skates line up, and the one girl's <laughs> shirt says San, the other one says Fran, the other one says Cisco. I wonder and what that they, was all about. Later in the film, they inexplicably decide that they have to go to San Francisco for the big finale. <laughs> I wasn't quite clear on why. I mean, uh, clearly San Francisco plays a big part in gay culture, and the uh, village people, although never once mentioned in the film, always tried to represent gay culture the best that they could. Wait, wait, but wait, they what, what? suddenly suddenly had to go to San Francisco to do their finale. Wait, are, are you trying to imply something here? Because, I mean, I was wondering about it myself. I mean, why are they promoting San Francisco, and why does everybody have to go to San Francisco? And I, I've always wondered, were the village people gay? Well, you know something, Mark? I'm like five years older than you, and even I, – I didn't pick up on it. At least not in like in 1978, 1979, 1980. Honestly, exactly. I didn't. To the most I, of us who were underage at that time, it wouldn't have been relevant and wasn't and didn't feel relevant to us. But as an adult, time, I could see it. But you know, at the time, it wouldn't have been useful information to me at all. And I think that's kind of the point, though, is even when you watch this film, the references are so understated as to be almost like what's the word 
it's just assumed nobody worries about it. It's that in itself is kind of idealized because that wouldn't have been most people's attitudes at the time. As far as, you know, middle class Americans watching this film. Well, none of the singers in this film really were very three dimensional characters. So we didn't they didn't we weren't really presented with a personal life for any of them. It was Valerie Perrine and Steve Gutenberg whose personal lives we knew at least something about. Right. And then you have the Bruce Jenner character who's like the fish out of water. And he, you know, this uptight lawyer who all of a sudden becomes liberated and becomes a uh, manager of a pop group. <laughs> and it's just, you know, only, I mean, you know, like, and it's just funny because it was back, the trend back in the, at least back in the 70s, probably, you know, anybody who was big in sports, they tried to make them into an actor. And, you know, Bruce Jenner, he seemed to be having a good time. Except for that moment where he was robbed by the old lady on the motorbike. <laughs> yeah. And, well, and no. then he tried to report his robbery to Ray Simpson, the village person who's dressed hmm. as a police officer, but is in fact not really a police officer. Yeah, there were, there were a whole lot of like, the, uh, the level of gags in that movie was generally of the, uh, the Henny Youngman variety, which I appreciate. Well, you know, and keep in mind, too, that when this movie was conceived, you know, 1978 or 1979, this was the height of the disco era. And between Casablanca Records and Alan Carr, the producer, they probably figured, okay, this is going to be the, you know, this is going to be the next big thing. Apparently not learning anything from Sgt. Pepper. You know, it's, they, they, the problem was that the movie's called Can't Stop the Music, but by the time the movie came out, the music had already stopped. I and I'll tell you, we talk. I've talked about the Love Boat in both of the, you know, other two. Uh, actually, no, I'm sorry. I talked about Love Boat, and literally, I think later that same year or the year after, the Village People appeared on the Love Boat. Oh, they did. I haven't seen that. I'd love to. I remember that. I saw that. They they did indeed. I think it was the same year. I, I think it, their parents was actually in conjunction with promoting this movie. Yeah, it probably it was probably filmed at around the same time, and I, I think it was one of those things where by the time the the Love Boat episode came out, it was past the point of no return. You know, the the music had stopped, and apparently the uh, Love Boat couldn't save them. I think also Casablanca Records itself can't stop the music. Probably was the last major project that Neil Bogart signed off on before he parachuted out. Most likely. So, Kathy, what is, uh, you know, what do you think about Can't Stop the Music? Since you've, I, I think your perspective is probably the most interesting because you just saw it. So your perspective is a lot more fresh than Mark it's, or I. It's true. I didn't see it at the time and I only just saw it this week. It was, um. Would you watch it again? Uh, no, I don't think I'll be putting this film on again. I enjoyed watching it. I enjoyed seeing Randy Jones and Felipe Rose and David Hoda, the village people as I remember them. And in fact, whether Ray Simpson was singing or Victor Willis was singing, I had I grew up watching both versions of the village people and probably didn't even notice that they'd swapped out a guy. Uh, although, I mean, I'm aware of the history now, but at the time, that was also wasn't relevant to me. Well, this brings up, I'm just going to put in one more point, Kathy, because you just reminded me of this. Uh, two things is... Obviously, YMCA, they wanted to use YMCA in the movie because it was one of their biggest songs. But they had to have Ray Simpson re-record the vocal. <gasps> no, I did not know that. Yeah, so, Ray in Simpson, fact, he's singing on the on the film because he's in the film. Yeah. yeah. I, I, ah. The backing track sounds pretty much the same. I think they just overdubbed his voice onto the existing track. Mm-hmm. And, you know, musically, the other thing, too, is that on the Village People's first album, they had a song called San Francisco. Why that song was not in this movie is beyond me. But the girls on the roller skates at the beginning on the T-shirts. Still had their shirts spell out the name of San Francisco. You mean Cisco, Fran, and San? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, that's – and the and the other thing too, and, and I didn't realize this until I had watched the Blu-ray and listened to the commentary track, the YMCA sequence was not directed by Nancy Walker. I was just about to say the YMCA sequence stands out. Because, well, one, because of the one, the music, two, it was an actual song that I already knew before I saw this film. And it was a really extensive uh, musical number with a tremendous amount of acrobatics and dancing, as opposed to the rest of the film, which didn't have the, the only singing in the rest of the film, if I recall correctly, is when someone goes on stage to entertain the audience. 
Well, what about uh, David? Uh, what's his name? David, the construction worker. He, he oddly. Oh, he had a only... dream sequence. <laughs> he did have a dream sequence in which he uh, sang to uh, a group of uh, women who were fawning on him. Mm-hmm. How come he's the only one who gets a solo? You would think that the cop would get most of the solos. The funny thing about the policeman, Ray Simpson, is that he's kind of pushed to the back. But I can kind of understand that because he was the new guy in the group. And I don't think he had quite the same personality that Victor Willis did. He's a good singer, but I think Victor Willis just had more of a commanding kind of presence. But obviously he looked at the script for this movie and said, yeah, I think I'm going to embark on a solo career. Yeah. (sighs) Final thoughts. This film did ask in one of its songs if we were ready for the 80s, and it is worth it just for that, because that optimism at the end of the 70s that we were coming into a whole new decade and being... I get the feeling that all the three of us are about the same age. I would have, again, been about 15, which would have put you each like four years behind me. The the idea that we were now going to live in a different decade was just such an exciting concept. It was as if in my mind, everything was just going to change overnight. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. And they were seeing it as if that were going to be true. Well, the 70s going to the 80s was the first time I'd ever transitioned into a new decade. So, right, what Kathy said is exactly like, wow, the 80s, it's like mm-hmm. this mythical year. and We live in the was, future now. Yeah, it's like, you know, and then like back then, they you know, they would talk about 1999 and 2001, and they were like these mythical years, and now both of those years are 20-some-odd years behind us, and 1980 is 41 years old. By the time this movie came out, I probably wasn't as interested in seeing it as I would have been maybe a year earlier. I think at that point, I the Blues Brothers came on. I probably would have chosen the Blues Brothers, and I did choose the Blues Brothers over this. But then again, I think the Blues Brothers was around longer. Can't Stop the Music was another movie that just didn't do very well, and it you know pretty much was the nail in the coffin for the village people's heyday. That was a film about optimism, really. I really enjoyed that uh, when Steve Gutenberg quit his job to just go uh, start up a band, a singing group of his own that he just had an idea for. Most people just supported him. And even his uh, stuffy mother eventually came to agree with him. And often in a film, everyone's trying to hold that person back. Yeah, it's a bit idealistic. And again, it goes back to the heyday of, you know, the MGM musicals. You know, Mickey Rooney and Judy get together and decide to put on a, decide to save the town by putting on a show. And they have to audition various people, hijinks ensue, et cetera. Hey, in this film, they don't, they don't have to save the town. They just fly across the country, and they just That's automatically true. get on, on, you know, Neil Bogart. Well, not Neil Bogart, but the Neil Bogart want, uh, doppelganger's jet, and uh, they go across, and they, and, they st- and they can't stop the music, and it all ends with a big flourish. That's true, and, to, and, you know, to this day, the music has never stopped. They're actually still there on that stage, dancing as we speak. Well, if I, if I knew that was if I knew that to be true, I'd, I'd go join them. That's true. at one point though we all do, because of course the music has never stopped. But it, but getting back to like reality though, I think what Kathy said was interesting because there was that optimism implied, and I think that's what the '70s disco subculture was all about. You know, what is what is that song? I love the nightlife. I love the boogie. Who does that song? Alicia Bridges. Yeah. The first line of that song is, I don't want to hear about any more of these troubles. We've had enough. Let's just go and party. It's just pure escapism. And looking back at that and thinking about the time that we're in now, where we're counting down to you know, a changing of the guard, so to speak, but we all kind of do wish that you know things are going to get better magically once we reach you know the, that point. Unlike well, Sergeant Pepper's, where the boys went off to the big city to get a record contract and were drugged and tricked into a contract that involved them involved kidnapping and murder, and unlike Kiss meets the Phantom, where Kiss go to play a concert and end up coming across a evil guy that uh, turns people into robots and steals talisman. The uh, can't stop the music basically has no conflict whatsoever. There's some interpersonal conflicts, but really they just do nothing but win throughout the whole course of this film. And I think that's a great uh, note to end this on. 
because that's what this show is about positivity and uh music and and like and i'm glad we decided i'm glad that we decided to do this subject as a change of pace because normally we so far we've been talking about bands and albums but it's kind of nice to talk about these three movies as these pop culture experiments that may not have uh, been big hits in the town although kiss meets the phantom was a top rated uh, tv movie we can look back on them now and get some enjoyment out of them Oh, yeah, they're total time capsules. But, you know, again, like the patina of nostalgia and the fact that they're still on that stage dancing, even at this day, you know, all those things come together. And they are enjoyable, especially to people of our generation. I'm still not sure what they mean to anybody outside of our generation. (laughs) But I definitely enjoy them, you know, with a grain of salt and with a good deal of nostalgia. Nothing wrong with that. And with that, we'll wrap up this episode of the Double K Super Show Goes to the Movies. Kathy Williams, want to thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me, Chris. It was definitely a pleasure, and you brought a nice new perspective to it. We like bringing on new people and having getting fresh perspectives because our perspectives are not as fresh as they used to be. Uh, you both had wonderful perspectives and great observations to make. And thank you for being such gracious hosts. Thank you, Kathy. On that note, we will wish you a goodbye. 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 Goodbye, Chris. Bye, Mark. Bye-bye, Kathy. And remember, (laughs) you can't stop the music and you can't stop us talking. We'll see you next time on the next episode of the Double K Super Show. Good night, Gracie. The opinions expressed on the Double K Super Show do not necessarily reflect that of anyone, really. The Double K Super Show is a Double K production. Copyright 2021 Double K Productions, all rights reserved.